Content warning, mental health issues, racism, anti-Semitism, euthanasia, eugenics, ableism, and scalloped flapping tatters. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. shore the cloud waves break, the twin suns sink beneath the lake, the shadows lengthen in Carcosa. Strange is the night where black stars rise, and strange moons circle through the skies, but stranger still is lost Carcosa. Songs that the Hyades shall sing, where flap the tatters of the king, must die unheard in dim Carcosa. Song of my soul, my voice is dead. Die thou unsung as tears unshed Shall dry and die in lost Carcosa. Time, they say, is a flat circle. So it is that certain names and creations can escape their fictions and take on a life of their own. Before H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos became a favorite playground of genre writers, Robert W. Chambers' story cycle of The King in Yellow, but a play that drives its readers mad and the strange cosmic divinities that feature in it, captured the imaginations of writers and fans alike, becoming an idea passed down between authors and developed and added to over the years, right up to the present day. Welcome to What Mad Universe. I'm Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hello. Uh, who has a bit of a cold today. <laughs> yes. Apologies for that. <clears throat> oh, no problem. cursed by uh, Lost Carcosa. And today we're talking about the 10 stories written by Robert W. Chambers in 1895, which are known collectively as the King in Yellow Cycle. Now, we've been asked a bunch if we're going to be doing a Lovecraft episode. and um, I'm, a, I'm personally a fan of Lovecraft with the necessary caveats that he was a huge racist and a bigot and a horrible person, uh, and that infuses all his works. But uh, I still I, I enjoy the concepts and things of them. But... Uh, Every podcast has done the Lovecraft episode at this point. I'm sure even podcasts about college football do the occasional Lovecraft episode. I mean, I hear the Miskatonic Shagas have a pretty sweet lineup this year. Waka waka. Uh, so this is sort of a roundabout Lovecraft uh, episode, since this was a huge influence on Lovecraft's work. Right. Yeah, he was, um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to I'm not gonna badmouth Lovecraft. I've never, I've never been as huge into, not that I didn't like him, I just didn't read a lot of him growing up the way a lot of people did. Uh, you know, I, I kind of got into him a bit later, and I there's a lot of his stuff I haven't read. Um, 
<clears throat> I do get the, you know, I've read enough of this stuff, but it, it is interesting to me that I, I feel like an awful lot of what Lovecraft was doing that he gets praised for was just kind of rehashing King in Yellow and Lord the Lord Dunsany Pagana cycle, which we already covered uh, an ep a few episodes ago uh, in All the Gods Say One episode. Um, like, those two are very, very, very clear <laughs> um, antecedents to Lovecraft. Oh, um, yeah, he was taking a lot of what came before, but I think it's the, the exact way he shaped it into a, his story that uh, resonates with people. Sure, I mean, he built on it in interesting ways, for sure. And, well, and, and I mean, this is the thing about... Um, about the King in Yellow is that it it's it's almost become as we said at the beginning uh, as you said um, it's almost become a thing that's bigger than any one author because it's been referenced like the King in Yellow has essentially been folded into the Lovecraft mythos at this point. Um, I oh know yeah, yeah. Certain aspects like the the Cult of the Yellow Sign are directly mentioned. Right. We'll yeah. Talk about that later. Yeah, I, I think I, I know that the role playing games have had a huge impact on Lovecraft's mythos post Lovecraft himself, uh, which, um, indicated, um, and, and they, they've literally made the, the King in yellow into one of the deities that is part of the Cthulhu mythos. There's one. Uh, yeah. That was uh, post Lovecraft. I mean, Lovecraft mentions right. Hastur and some other things, but, right. um, it was Darleth that sort of, yeah. Codified all that stuff in ways that I don't really like, but yeah, well, yeah that... August Darleth was, uh, the inheritor of the Lovecraft, uh, estate, I suppose. And he, um, he pop he helped popularize it. Like we probably wouldn't know Lovecraft if not for him. Right. Um, but on the other hand, he also turned it into this whole good versus evil pantheon with, with like a Greek mythological, you know, all the gods are related sort of thing. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it I doesn't mean, really. Yeah. It doesn't ahead, really sorry. work with with the concepts that he's playing with. Yeah, he would. I mean, clearly some of Lovecraft's stories are linked, but others he kind of. He, you know, they're they're sort of forced in there in, in ways that he maybe didn't intend that to be. And, yeah. Um, so Darleth uh, set up uh, Hastur as the king in yellow. Like that's um, right. solid within later Cthulhu mythos writing that they're the one and the same. But yeah. it's more ambiguous earlier on. Well, it, it's interesting because well, see, so no, this is the thing about the king in yellow. I mean, he he well, not the the phrase the king in yellow is chambers, but. Um, a lot of the names and, in some ways, the general ideas and tone uh, are from Ambrose Bierce, so they actually predate Chambers, even. Uh, the names yeah. Carcosa and Hastur, uh, and the emphasis on Aldebaran and the Hyades, which are stars, uh, are from and, the... And uh, Halley. Halley as well. Uh, oh, uh, yes, that's right. Halley's in there. Uh, they're all from the Ambrose Bierce stories, An Inhabitant of Carcosa and Hate of the Shepherd. Uh, the first involves a lost traveler in a vaguely oriental land, uh, trying to return home to the titular Carcosa, only to realize his city is in ruins, and he's a long-dead spirit being channeled by a medium. So, in a weird way, it's actually similar to his uh, famous uh, occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, except thousands of years instead of uh, the guy dying, you know, in a heartbeat. Uh, and then the second is about a shepherd being toyed with by a god and goddess, and both feel, as I say, very similar to the Pecana mythos of Lord Dunsany, um, so and it's before those is it's before that as well. So it might have influenced Dunsany as well. Right, exactly. Yeah, it it feels like Beers influenced Chambers and Dunsany, who then influenced Lovecraft, basically. Um, yeah, and and in in that uh, in the Beers stories, Hastur is the god of shepherds. Uh, that's where yeah, and he seems fairly benign. 
Sort of. Yeah, yeah, he's the yeah, he's he's a fairly decent god, but it's also it's because you respect me and you, you know, you you treat me well and like he was going to wipe out the cities of the plains, but uh uh Hata the shepherd intervenes on their behalf and and even then there's uh there's a goddess who is the goddess of happiness who shows up and kind of taunts him and makes him miserable because she will never stick around. She keeps appearing and disappearing. Well, uh the thing is uh she has rules that nobody can live up to like if you ask her how long she's going to be staying for, she'll leave. Right. And that's a metaphor for, you know, you can't uh, question happiness. Right, exactly. Looking at gift yeah, horse it, in the mouth sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's So, I mean, there's still somewhat, both she and Hastur are kind of capricious gods. There's never, you know, the they definitely understand the idea of pagan gods kind of being... Yeah, but it's still more pastoral than, um, I mean, very pastoral, rather than uh, cosmic, you know... Right. Terrors. Yeah, they're not they're not Lovecraftian deities. They're they're like ancient Greek deities who are kind of yeah. They're just kind of jerkish, <laughs> but they could be nice if you if you treat them well as well. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, so so in a sense, and as I say, Hastur is listed as the god of shepherds in the actual King in Yellow stories. Uh, Hastur is basically uh, uh, listed as a place, although he's a little ambivalent about it. Um, was that that was my take on it, right? That it like he lists. Uh, yeah, it's it's ambiguous on whether it's a name or a place or yeah, it's not agreed on in uh, subsequent writings either. Because he lists it alongside the Lake of Halley and Demhi and a few other places as if it was like a geographical location, but everyone mm -hmm. else outside of Chambers seems to treat Hastur as a god, and sometimes the King in Yellow himself is named Hastur. Um, so yeah. that's actually going more back to the Bierce than to the actual Chambers story, uh, which is kind mm -hmm. of interesting. Um, so just, uh, do you want to, do you want to mention this bit at the beginning? Just, just so we're, we're, uh, outlining who the, uh, what the stories refer to here. The, uh, the four stories that mention the play. Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, there's, uh, the repairer of reputations, mm -hmm. the mask, uh, the Court of the Dragon, and the Yellow Sign, and to a lesser extent, uh, the Damoiselle D's. Right. And then the Prophet's Paradise, which are a series of poems that's the 6th entry in the in the classic book. Uh, mm -hmm. But they, they seem to be... I, I think even the implication is that they're either part of the play, The King in Yellow, the play within the story, or they are... Uh, what's the word? Um, you know how sometimes... A, Poems will be bound with plays or with writings, like you know, the, oh, okay. In, like such as in the Bible, you have you've got the Psalms. It's I think it's supposed to be like that. They're appended to the play because uh, they clearly deal with figures who might appear in the play and ideas and themes like that. Anyway, mm -hmm. and then there's four and then yeah, yeah there's ahead. four more that are utterly unrelated in tone and everything like they're they're love stories basically right yeah D Set I actually in France, did not and they're very so, some of them are very quaint yeah yeah i i didn't read the last four stories because i i knew there wasn't much of a link to the king in yellow did you read them uh yeah i i skimmed them i didn't really pay much attention because they there was nothing to do with you know pulpish stuff right. uh they're basically like i said romance stories like uh a guy falls in love with a a, a girl in the um, uh, Latin Quarter of France, of Paris, right. and uh, she's a prostitute. Uh, they never use the word, but it's clear that's what she is. And um, but he doesn't know it, and he falls in love with her, thinking she's pure. And it has a happy ending, and it's 
so yeah, it's it's not it's not a horror story whatsoever. Yeah, it's there's it's, no supernatural it, elements. There's yeah. It, it sounds like um, after the King in Yellow, like Chambers wrote a few sort of the you know he was writing quote weird fiction. Uh, he kind of as as he was writing these King in Yellow stories, he drifted over to romantic fiction and kind of. Uh, slice of life fiction, which then became his career for a while. Like that was actually what he was known for writing for the next decade or two. And then into the, once they got into the 20th century, apparently he did go back and start writing speculative fiction again. Um, someone, um, it might even have been Lovecraft himself. Uh, they mentioned that the, the chambers was a bit frustrating because you get the sense that he had all these great ideas and didn't develop them as well as he could have basically um that he he was kind of and it 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 works especially in the repair of reputations but you can see how he's kind of throwing a lot of different ideas at the wall (laughs) to see what sticks you know yeah i i think that's the most interesting one yeah all these stories right yeah Uh, should we go over that one in particular yeah, let's let's talk about it. the general consensus is yeah that that's the best. Like, I think a lot of people feel that that's the best of the of the stories, the first one. Um, yeah, so like you said, it combines a lot of ideas. It's ostensibly set in the future of the of the nineteen twenties, um, and it's um, America has just been involved in a war with Germany, which is uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's doing really well, um, and. Um, it, it we get well it's doing well according to the author but we, we're given many many reasons why we shouldn't trust what he's saying right and um, and even his description of it as utopian um is a little bit questionable because he describes how he, he it makes it sound a little oppressive basically <laughs> oh yeah yeah it, there's there's soldiers marching up and down the streets at all times uh-huh. uh there's uh they've banned jews from entering the country right They've but he also out on says they in general actually yeah of, yeah of but certain ethnicities basically yeah, yeah, yeah. Jews but it also said he also says uh, the old bigotries of the past are gone right <laughs> like yeah. within the same paragraph it's ridiculous yeah yeah and um, and I think uh, that's deliberate people. I think he knows that, that oh yeah, is, yeah that is a bit insane to say that <laughs> like although um I I read another chamber story called the uh, maker of moons okay. Have you read that one? No, I haven't read that one. Uh, it's a proto Yellow Peril story, so it it itself hmm. is pretty racist, right. really racist. Right. Well, you can you um, can it get has a... some good imagery, and I, I actually used it uh, extensively in a story I wrote for my webcomic, but uh, I had to rework a lot of things. Well, you can always get the this weird uh, thing where people are you know they can write you know unashamedly Yellow Peril stories, and then but then be you know anti-anti-semitic you know like there, there's different mm-hmm. levels on which people can be you know racist and not racist and uh, you know there there are especially in the old times they can you know you, you get people who who had strong feelings about one racial minority and then were you know very protective of another so it, it can be a little weird in that regard uh but I, I think in that particular case he was trying to you know to to, to call out anti-semitism rather than uh, claim it as a purely good like there's more than enough evidence that this is yes this is an oppressive society because explain the uh the chamber there the oh um, uh first uh, they also uh put all black people into their own country called or to their own state 
Suwadi, it's called. And it, okay, it, yeah. and you're right. It says it just says the settlement of the new independent Negro state of Suwadi, which you're right. I almost you you tend to read that as oh they gave black people their own independent state, which sounds positive, but then it could also be that they literally. They literally herded them into a state. But if it's independent, you kind of... Th you, anyway, but clearly this isn't generally a good development no matter what the situation. So, you know, it it, 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 it goes along with the idea that things are getting a little more oppressive, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, that reminds me a little of a, a Albert Robita story of the 20th century. Okay. Um, our good friend who wrote Saturn and Ferrandil. Um <laughs> But uh, there's a um, Native American city uh, set up called, uh, with the unfortunate name Tomahawk City, but it's an independent uh, uh, city run by uh, Native American people. It's sort of territory given back to them. Right. And it's got some racist jokes, like uh, they're really into barber shops because, you know, uh, scalping. Oh, God. So, yeah, it's a bit unfortunate, but it's still, I, I think that idea could be used in some... Of course, uh, I don't know. Well, of speculative course, fiction or something. Yeah, it, it's also a, a common racist trope among you know the really hardcore bigots that the idea of well we'll give them their own state and everything will be okay basically. So oh yeah, but they're not confined to this area. They just right. Yeah. Well, I mean they'll they'll claim that oh no it's freedom everyone gets their own space and it's great like they'll they won't claim that it's meant to be oppressive so you you know like it, it it's how they claim they're going to do things and then of course they have no interest in actual actually letting people stay free it's just a it's just a cover for their their more harsher bigotry but that is a common sort of white supremacist talking point of oh they can have their own state and their own you know portion of the country to, to exist in kind of thing. Anyway, but... As uh, the Simpsons said, there'll be a planet for the French, a planet yeah. for the Chinese, and we'll all be a lot happier. Exactly. That is exactly it. <laughs> that's that's an exaggeration of a real thing that they could say. And then, uh, anyway, but so, yeah, it's, it's funny because he tosses this out and other than it creates an atmosphere of oppression, but it's not directly tied to the story. Um, uh, no, and there's uh, important, as you were bringing up earlier, uh, there's a... Um, They've legalized suicide, essentially. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's it's the Futurama suicide booths are now in in operation in the future. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's um. Well, there's a single one in New York, but uh, yeah, it's called the Lethal Chamber, and people just go in if they want to die. Right. And it's, it's euthanasia accepted. chambers, and um, and they do talk about how they want one in every city, and they're like it's a pilot program, but it's it's really getting started, basically. Yeah, and the idea is that these people are. Uh, uh, not fit to live in society because they don't want to live, so it's best to get rid of them. So it's got some eugenics aspect to it. Right, yep. Which, again, people in the 19th century could sometimes portray as a good thing, but my general take on it is that because we are seeing all this from the perspective of the title character of their pair of reputations, who's not a good person, uh, that we're meant to, you know, we're meant to be suspicious of of uh of of this society <laughs> as being a, a quote utopia as he claims it to be and he's also mentally unbalanced so it's possible all of this is in his head that's right there is there, some people have raised the possibility that even the idea that it's although another one of the stories is set in the same basic world so you've got yeah, to assume um, another story involved uh, in front of the uh, lethal chamber there's a sculpture of three fates uh -huh. and uh one of the other the next story in this series uh the mask uh, is partially about the sculptor of the statue. So, 
Right, yeah. Yeah, there's enough to make you think that, okay, it's not that insane that he's imagining he's in the future. Like, it, that part of it is probably correct. Like, the, the basic societal description is probably correct. It's just, you know, a lot of the other things that the, the, the author believes, or the narrator believes, are but not. Yeah, there, there is a theory that, you know, the suicide booths are just, like, entrances to the subway tunnel or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they're thematically, they, they, you know, metaphorically, they represent certain things. Anyway, uh, but let's go on with the uh, the plot of the first story, as you were saying there. Um, yeah, so uh, he's in the future. He's recently had a head injury, and his whole personality has changed. And um, uh, he's uh, friends with a sort of crazy old man who uh, claims to be a um, uh, repairer of reputations. So... Uh, he has all these men in his employ that he doesn't, that he admittedly, self-admittedly doesn't pay well, but they don't realize it. And um, uh, basically, he can ruin people's reputations or repair them after they've ruined their own reputations. Right. <clears throat> it's a little ambiguous how he does this. Yeah. Well, he, he claims to have agents in all throughout high society who can basically spread gossip about people. <laughs> That yeah, seems to be the me the method that it works by, and we do see him uh, kind of doing that to someone in the course of the story. So he's probably, you know, delusional, but he may also have some real grip on this. It's hard to say. Yeah, what I picked up was that basically everybody who's read The King in Yellow has gone in a similar insane route. Right. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, they're all yeah. sort of grouping together. Right, they have delusions. So they're all acting out the delusions together. Yeah, they all they all believe they're part of a massive, you know, uh, not necessarily conspiracy, but a you know, there's this big legend, secret legendarium going on, and they all have this power that's waiting for them to reach out and grasp them. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, we haven't really discussed the King in Yellow itself. Um, well, sort of, but it's a play within a with it's a play within the story mm -hmm. that if you read it you go insane basically or bad things happen or something well you go and yeah they explicitly say you go insane you you read the, the first act is fairly normal or even banal as they say and then yeah you, and the only actual excerpts we get from it are from the first act right and it's it's it, but if you catch a glimpse of the second act you start to read because it reveals uh, hideous truths that are beyond human comprehension and drives you insane, basically. Yeah, and it's been... They've tried to ban it, but there's nothing actually illegal in it, so... Right. It just, uh... It just, uh... Messes people up. Right. Uh, why I said the, uh... It doesn't necessarily drive you insane is because the second story, The Mask, where somebody reads it and doesn't go insane... Does he read it though, or does he just own it? I wasn't, or was it only that he read the first act and stopped reading? Uh, huh. Because of the four stories, the mask is the one that, that the mask is the one with a happy ending <laughs> of the yeah. three. Uh, the other, the other three, uh, or the four, the other three all have their character reading the King in Yellow and becoming doomed by it, basically. Um, in uh, the, yeah. So I'm not. I actually. Uh, can't remember off the top of my head. I, I read the whole thing. I don't believe the the, the narrator of the mask reads uh, the King in Yellow. Um, he okay. he has it, but he doesn't read it, and it's mentioned briefly and everything. But and it's to do with like a scientific concoction. It's not to do with uh, everything else. Is you know potentially supernatural or potentially just delusions caused by people reading the play. 
but it's this is very specifically this guy has a you know uh, has a formula that can change thing <coughs> that can change him into uh, change things into stone basically to marble. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So back to uh, repair of reputations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the narrator believes himself to be the uh, in the line of uh, kings of America. Right. Uh, which is odd. Oh, but, even going uh, back, like he literally believes he's an ain't descendant. If you go far back enough, of the king in yellow, he believes his, yeah, he's yeah. of the line of the king in yellow, which is yeah. Touch. Um. So you know it connects in that way, but um. um yeah, so he actually believes his his uh, his cousin Louis is the actual king, and uh, um, all he has to do is to get his cousin to uh, uh, abdicate the throne. Abdicate the throne. Uh, am I saying that right? Yeah, abdicate the throne. Yes. Um, and uh, never marry, and uh, he'll be rewarded with exile, and the main character will become king. Right. Um, and the king, and, uh, lit- the, the Castain, the main character, he literally he has a crown in his apartment that he goes to, and he says, "Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've." Hawberk, the old man who sort of gave him the play and started spelling out his genealogy in the first place, uh, apparently has given him this crown. And uh, oh no, no, not Hawberk. It's it's the other, it's the other guy. Oh, sorry, oh, yeah. I didn't read. It's uh, Wild, Mister Wild. Yeah. Who's uh, yeah? He's he's the one who's, you know, the King in Yellow play drove the main character insane. But Wild seems to be feeding him the delusions, and that's why it's the repair of reputations because he's saying, "Oh yeah, I'll elevate you to the throne of North America," um, mm-hmm. and he's given him this genealogy that quote proves that he's you know the of this royal ascent, and he has a crown that he keeps in a safe at in his apartment, which he takes out to look at and say, you know, I can. Someday I'll wear this crown and be the king of America, basically. And uh, Louis, uh, eventually in the story, sees it and just thinks it's a piece of junk. Right. So again, yeah, it's, it's, you know, delusions of the main character there. Yeah, it's clearly he talks about how it's a, it's a, it, like to Louis, it's a, it's a piece of junk, like a, a costume crown in a biscuit tin, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. And but so he, you know, he's seeing it as something that it isn't, ha- having read the play, essentially. Yeah. Um... Uh, so, uh, what else? Do you want to get into the plot details, or... Yeah, well, um, well, that's, that's fine. I think that's, that's enough. I mean, we've, 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 we've spelled it out more or less. Then he just, he basically, of, of course, develops a murderous fixation on his cousin, which you can probably predict. Um, and, uh, but the other two characters in, uh, in The Court of the Dragon is a guy who went into a, who's basically haunted by a vision. He goes to, he's read The King in Yellow, he goes to church, but he's haunted by the vision of um, of someone. Is he the organist in the church? Um, uh, I believe so. Yeah, and he's really maggoty and gross looking. Right. Yeah. The, well, there's two. That's you almost wonder if it's the same person because in in the Court of the Dragon and uh, the Yellow Sign, they both see this creepy, horrifying, maggoty looking person who keeps haunting them and cha- basically chasing them around. Uh, in mm-hmm. the in the Court of the Dragon, it's you know he's in church to sort of free himself from the burden of the king in yellow, but this guy shows up and chases him and he realize, and then he wakes up in church and he realizes it was his soul was being chased, but he's actually been doomed by the king in yellow and he can never escape even though he's in church. This is pretty bleak. And then um, the, the the yellow sign is essentially the same thing except the guy hasn't read the king in yellow. Uh, he's an artist. His model ends up getting hold of the book, which he's kept on his bookshelf 
and uh, reading it and going insane, and then he reads it and he goes insane, and then the guy who they've seen chasing them around shows up in their their front door and murders them. I guess, although it's a little ambiguous, um, he murders um, uh, Tessie, the the girl, and uh-huh. then dies himself. And the 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 uh, uh, the coroner says, "Oh, this guy's been dead for you know days, if not months. He's a he was a decomposing corpse. Yet somehow." You know, the, the narrator saw him walking around, and the narrator's on the verge of death as he writes all this. Um, mm-hmm. Again, you can argue that this is the delusions of the main character having read The King in Yellow, so there wasn't actually a, a disembodied corpse. He was just, you know, haunted by these ideas. Although he describes it as being haunted by this guy before he read the play, too, so it's a little bit uncertain of that. Yeah, the the ambiguity is part of what makes it interesting right. for all these stories. Uh, just uh, you don't know quite what's going on, and you have to put it together in your head. Yeah, and and the means of and the way that they have of not, of course, you by definition you can never know exactly what's in the play. They can only sort of talk about it in a in a vague way, um, which makes it very compelling and, and mysterious and interesting. And he just throws out these ideas. There's the Lake of Holly, the Lake. Lake of Demhi, the uh, black towers of Carcosa that rise behind the moon, he describes them at one point. Uh, he also says it has twin suns and black stars. Um, and I was, <laughs> I, uh, I was, so he, so Beerus made Carcosa kind of a, an ancient land, like a, you know, glimpsed briefly in a vision of this ancient, ancient society. And Chamber seems to go another step and make it into literally an alien world. Um, I was actually looking at this because I saw when, when it says black stars, I'm thinking of um, black holes. But I'm like, oh, 1895, we wouldn't have written about black holes. But the basic theory of black holes was formulated over 100 years before Chambers, so maybe he was thinking of that. I can't can't completely rule it out, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's definitely... When you say twin suns, you have to assume there's some, like it's it's some kind of alien world or dimension or something that's being glimpsed. Yeah, yeah. And again, that um, was probably something that strongly influenced Lovecraft. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, it also appeared in uh, the Illuminatus trilogy, which we've talked about before. Right. You mean the King in Yellow did? Or uh, well, Carcosa is mentioned. Right. Yeah. Um, but in the in the Illuminatus trilogy, it's specifically a human city in uh, Mesopotamia that was uh, destroyed by the uh, Loigor, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, which again that lines up with Beers more than uh, yeah more than Chambers specifically. So it is interesting how much of it, how much of Beers's thing <laughs> loops around, even though Chambers is the one who created the mythos out of Beers. Um, <clears throat> yeah, um, and uh, Illuminatus trilogy also has the. Uh, Cult of the Yellow Sign is a thing, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like, because August Derleth was in the 60s, right? He Early 60s, he, he sort of dug up uh, Lovecraft. I think it was 50s. Oh, or, earlier, okay. So, yeah, he, no, he knew Lovecraft. Oh, okay. But he yeah. was young. I, I'm not sure, but yeah. Okay. He was correspondence with Lovecraft anyway. He was friends with him. Oh, okay. So, and like I say, he was, because he was kind of packaging the Lovecraft mythos, that seems to be why the King in Yellow got folded in. Uh, I should note there's at least one other author whose creation got folded into the Lovecraft mythos, which is uh, uh, Sothagua, is another Lovecraftian deity created by um, Clark Ashton Smith, I believe. 
Uh, oh, there, there's lots that they all shared with each other. Clark right. Ashton Smith, though, was another correspondent of Lovecraft. So. Right, yeah, that was a little more intentional, like, oh, here's part of, here's something you can add to your mythos. Uh, so that's uh, yeah. Not a there's also uh, some from Robert E. Howard that got added. I'm not. I can't remember right. off the top of my head, but yeah, well, there's lots of sharing between these guys. With Howard, it was more like he liked to use the mythos to create monsters for Conan to fight. Uh, I don't know if anything turned around and fed back into Lovecraft. Uh, but. Yeah, the the Snake Men of Volusia appear in. Um, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head what it was called. It was the Shadow in the Steeple or something like that. Oh, okay. All right. But the Haunter of the say, Dark, not... sorry. Oh, Lurker at the Doorstep? Oh, okay. Uh, no, Haunter of the Dark. Oh, okay. Uh, he... Yeah, they're mentioned as uh, having owned the uh, uh, dodecahedron. That's... Oh. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, it houses uh, an avatar of Nyarlathotep. Oh, okay. Oh, that's... Uh, okay, so there you go. Um, yeah, no, I mean, obviously Howard and Lovecraft were both in touch with each other, and... Smith was as yeah, well. Yeah, so, yeah, like I said, the Serpent Men of Volusia are named in that story. Okay. Whatever the story is. All right. Uh, um, all right, so, yeah, like I say, that, that that's part, sort of why it became this, you know, shared world almost right from the start. Uh, but, yeah, Durleth seems to be the one, as you say, who, who really turned the King in Yellow into part of the Lovecraftian mythos as well. Um, yeah, so, well, like I said, Hester is mentioned, the Cult of the Yellow Sign is mentioned, but they're, yeah. they're passing references Right. Darleth really went in and made it part of the pantheon. Yeah, well, I mean, he's such an obvious influence on Lovecraft that you can't, <laughs> you, you, it's not, it's very, it feels very natural to make him part of the Lovecraft mythos, the Cthulhu mythos. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming that um, the authors of the Illuminatus trilogy at that point, if they were Lovecraft fans, which they clearly were, uh, you know, they just they were willing to work in the chambers uh, stuff as well because Durleth yeah. had worked it in, basically. So it's not hugely yeah. surprising. Now, you were also mentioning this uh, Lord Dunsany story uh, from around 1910. Carcassonne? Oh, yeah. Uh, Carcassonne. Okay. It's about a king who marches his army against a legendary city called uh, Carcassonne, um, and he's never able to find it, but he spends his whole life in pursuit of it. Um, and they all grow old and... It's always like it's just around the corner and they'll never find it. Nobody knows how to get there. Uh -huh. um, so it's sort of like, a, you know, grass is always greener sort of thing or don't waste your life uh, uh, chasing impossible dreams sort of thing. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, it was uh, – so the name is sort of um, a lost city named Carcosa, Carcassonne, sort of similar. Yeah. And this was, of course, after... I think it's Carcassonne, because there's also a board game by the same name, oddly enough. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I heard it as Carcassonne when I yeah. listened to an audiobook. So oh, okay. Oh, all right. Fair enough, if that's what they said. But that guy could have been wrong, so yeah. I don't know. Well, the board um, game's French, too, so maybe they have their own pronunciation of it, <laughs> basically. So. Yeah. yeah, but uh, it was uh, uh, supposed... Well, according at the beginning of the story, uh, uh, Dunsany writes that... Uh, uh, I'll just quote it. In a letter from a friend who I have never seen, one of those who have read my books, this line was quoted. But he, he never came to Carcassonne. I do not know the origin of the line, but I made it, made this tale about it. Okay. So, are so we, supposedly someone just quoted the line just out of context, and he thought it was interesting, hmm. so he wrote a story around it. And that, and you think, and you're, we're saying that was Chambers that he was quoting? No, no, I, I just think it's sort of, I don't know, Maybe somebody heard 
or re- had read The King in Yellow and suggested that line to him huh. or something. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I that's, mean, yeah, that's po- that's entirely possible, yeah. Someone... It is similar in, in terms of how it sounds and all that, and the, the themes of it. Right. The you yeah, know, it's, lost it's... city that you can never actually see sort of thing. Yeah. There's another uh, story uh, by Vladimir Nabokov who wrote uh, Lolita, uh, who is not generally, he's not a genre writer, he's not someone you would necessarily put in this company, but, uh, you know, reading it, uh, rereading The Repair of Reputations, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a novel he wrote called Pale Fire, which is narrated by a guy who describes being the heir to a, a lost throne in Europe, uh, found his way to America, and, you know, the story ends with an act of violence, and he, he folds it into, yeah, this, this assassin was coming for me, but by the end of the novel, you've suddenly gone, oh, wait a minute, was this guy just some rando who's literally making up his own history of being the heir to a throne, and he's just either insane or a complete confabulator? He just makes up, uh, you, you know, he makes up stories to make himself feel big. By the end of the novel, you're very much asking yourself, oh, did this, did, did any of this, this backstory happen? Like, the stuff that happened in the present clearly happened, but there's no actual proof that any of it uh, ties into his huge backstory that he's woven. And I couldn't help but think this might have been in, inspired by the Repair of Reputations because it's very much the same thing. A a sinister, uh, confabulating figure who makes up a, a, a royal history for himself to justify violence, basically. Um, so that was kind of... And I, I don't know if anyone's ever tied Nabokov to it, but... Uh, Nabokov, but uh, I, I thought that was actually interesting because that is a very good novel, Pale Fire. Um, yeah, I've only read Lolita, and uh, uh, it was really good, but I never want to read it again. So that <laughs> no. sort of turned me off that right. author. But I, yeah, I should read his other stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was it was very good. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's he's one of the you know as that this is always going back to our occasional theme here of you know where's the dividing line bef- between you know high class prose and and uh, and genre pulp and sometimes it's blurrier than you might expect and, and oh i mean chambers is totally blurs the line because he went into both right yeah and it's but interesting just, it's that inter- it's only it's only his um uh pulp stuff that seems to have survived the history yeah and then of course uh a few years ago as most people know and if most people who know the king of yellow king in yellow uh are aware of it um from the recent HBO series, True Detective, uh, which the first season uh, borrowed heavily from The King in Yellow as sort of an imagery. Um, it, it wasn't. It ended up not playing a huge role in the plot, but uh, it sounds like the you know the people who were behind uh, the the murder in uh, True Detective, which were kind of ritualistic cult like murders. Uh, sounds like they got a little too into The King in Yellow as well. You could almost read it as they were another gang of people who read the play and got caught up on it and developed this whole ritual where they were going to sacrifice uh, sacrifice girls to the, to the, quote, King in Yellow. Um, and that kind of, that reawakened everyone's interest in, uh, in the aforementioned King in Yellow. Um, I, have you seen True Detective, uh, Phil? Uh, no. Yeah. I, I, um, I, but I know of this... Um... But I sort of heard, started hearing about it late, when by then season two had started and everybody yeah. hated it. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely. Um, I, I think that the, even the first season I think was a little overrated. Um, but I mean, it was very. It did very effectively use this uh, this chambers mythology uh, to kind of draw you into this idea that it was. 
uh, Twin Peaksy or or um, X Filesy. Even though there was nothing actually supernatural in the story, just the you know it, it created a very effective atmosphere. Uh, but you know, I, I heard a lot of fan theories went off the rails, sort of thinking that it would actually turn out to be supernatural stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, it's you, you, on the one hand, you want to say, oh, the, you know, the fans they got carried away, but the show really does evoke the idea that maybe they're facing some kind of supernatural threat. It's more of a an atmospheric thing, like they make him seem supernatural in the evil they're facing, and it has these and it has these sort of cosmic questions of the same kind that Chambers and Lovecraft and everyone like to like to uh like to think about like that was actually a major you know they're they're talking about uh you know the the ultimate clash between good and evil it's not just a simple you know detective story so it does evoke the it does suggest that maybe they are going to end with uh some kind of supernatural entity and there's even at you know no spoilers but at the climax there is a glimpse of something strange which could be read as, like, supernatural. But there's nothing overtly supernatural in the story as the plot unfolds, basically. Yeah, I guess Twin Peaks, it took a while to get into straight-up supernatural stuff, too, so... Right, yeah, exactly. It's uh, the same no, thing. No, there, because... there was psychic visions in the first episode, but... Right. Yeah, Well, anyway. it's... It... It's, yeah, it, it creates an... Well, it, it, I don't think it's technically psychic visions. I think it's just... Like, you could you could explain it as someone's weird ideas rather than again same with the king and yellow mythos you could explain everything as unreliable narrators having delusional visions um mm -hmm. but yeah it's it, it well, does twin peaks as it goes on it's definitely it has supernatural stuff sure in it. yeah it does but but up until you know the end of uh you know up until mid season two it, it's like it's in the same mode as twin peaks where there's no mm -hmm. explicit tied to the supernatural, but it's evoking, like, a set, a feeling of the uncanny and a feeling of the the strange and, and surreal <laughs> up until that point. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so... Oh, so, um, yeah, there's, there's been a few attempts to actually write out The King in Yellow. I didn't really look into them, because I think that's is, a stupid idea. That's That defeats the entire purpose. You're not supposed to yeah. ever see it's The King like in Yellow. It's like people who put out the Necronomicon, like, you right. know, supposedly the real Necronomicon. Right. It just. What's the point? Yeah. Well, at least with yeah, I feel like when it, when you see something called the Necronomicon, it's usually like a collection or a or a role playing game or something. Like they use the title, but it's not explicitly the. Yeah, but there's a few attempts to actually write it, I think, <laughs> which so. are just not going to work. Obviously. Yeah. We we, we covered um uh, uh a few our I think our ninth show, Death of the Author. We covered um the fact that uh. Vonnegut wrote, uh, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, where he evoked stories within a story of, uh, you know, a, a science fiction novel written by Kilgore Trout, and then, um, uh, Philip Jose Farmer, Jose, Philip Jose Farmer, yeah, he, um, yeah, so then he actually went and wrote out the science fiction story that was, you know, of which we saw glimpses in God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, that's a way more defensible move, because, there's not supposed to, I mean, he even says in God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, that it's not supposed to be that great a book. The idea is just, sometimes you can see surprisingly profound truths in trashy genre fiction, which, hey, that's mm -hmm. why we do the podcast. Uh, yeah. But in the case of uh, The King in Yellow, not only is it supposed to be this supernatural book, but it's literally described as, like, the, one of the reasons they keep it out there is that uh, they talk about how it is... Um, 
what's uh, it's the pinnacle of art supposedly it's considered yeah. to be one of the best things ever written right um but it yeah drives well it's always hard with uh um you know if you have a character who's like a great uh um uh, speaker or a great orator right. and um you have to actually show that like uh, the left behind novels have the the Antichrist is supposedly giving this great speech to the UN where he just <laughs> right. names all the countries in alphabetical order and they all clap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's just terrible. And uh, I also heard complaints about the uh, the uh, Aaron Sorkin show, uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Right. Supposedly the show within a show was supposed to be hilarious, but uh, nobody found it funny in the actual Right. Whenever you people see watching the, the show. Yeah, yeah whenever you see... Whenever you see clips, it's not that good. There's also a movie uh, starring Will Ferrell called Stranger Than Fiction about a guy who discovers he's the protagonist in a literary novel and the author meets him and starts to have doubts about the book she's writing because her plan is to kill him. Um, but again, it's it's held up as this, uh, you know, amazing work of literature and, you know, I, I have to follow my muse and, and tell the story the way it's meant to end and, uh, and you know, so they're smart enough not to show you much of the story. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that gives, um, there's enough ambiguity, like, that's probably not the whole story, like, there's more to the book. Right. Well, you can, yeah, no, no, that, that's exactly it. They were obviously in a bit of a bind where they, you know, they can't show the story. There's nothing about the Will Ferrell parts of that movie that make you go, oh, this is such a brilliant story, but they talk about how, you know, he's one character in a sprawling novel, and there's all kinds of other things. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, you always raise, you know, when you, when you start talking about a brilliant work of art, uh, it, also I'm just thinking of it cause I've, I've started watching the show, uh, the, the magnificent Mrs. Maisel or the, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, which is about a standup comic in the fifties. There's one, uh, scene in the recent season where, uh, she meets an artist and the artist says, I'm going to show you a painting that I don't show anyone else. And we, the audience never see the painting, the canvas is away from us, but she gets to see it. And he says, I don't show this to anyone. It's my masterpiece, but I've deliberately never shown it to anyone until you, because it's only for me. It's not for anyone else. And, uh, you know, there's, <laughs> I mean, that is the way to handle it, of course. But, of course, you could never show it to the audience anyway, because <laughs> it would have to be the most brilliant painting ever. And how you're just going to make that is the, you know, the set decoration. The only way to do something like they that is... They also did that on uh, Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah, it's it's a common, um, it's a common yeah. thing. <laughs> like, I, the only way to ever handle something like that is to, to not show anyone and or, or or you could show you could handle it by telling a story about a real painter like if it was about picasso you could show guernica and be like okay well this is an obvious masterpiece and then you don't have to you don't have to excuse it you don't have to create something within the, the world of the story you can just show something that everyone acknowledges is a masterpiece right so yeah <clears throat> so yeah that it that is a problem with a lot of fiction about great artists you yeah. know you actually have to create great art within the <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, and, the, and, and in a way, that's what it. the King and Yellow cycle is about, because it's about, you know, I, I, I as the writer of the story, can never show the King, if I'm going to portray this as the, you know, the pinnacle of, of playwriting, I can never show it. Uh, so literally putting kind of a geas on it so that nobody can read it and without going insane and I could never talk about it. You know, in a, in a way, it's if that was all he was interested in, that's actually a clever way of never having to <laughs> to live up to the play. Oh, uh, it's a masterpiece. I, I was listening to an episode of Behind the Bastards on uh, L. Ron Hubbard. That's uh -huh. another podcast. It's, it's really good, Behind the Bastards. Yeah. But um, apparently he wrote a... Uh, 
a novel that uh, he claimed drove people insane. Oh, really? And caused them well. to commit suicide when they read it. It was so good, it caused them to kill themselves. <laughs> and that's why he never released it. Uh, that sounds an awful lot like he was reading Chambers, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that was the whole thing with uh, Hubbard, as he seems to have wanted to to put out sci-fi ideas and, and turn them into reality, essentially. So... Uh, I think we're uh, just. Do you have any further thoughts, Phil? Uh, I think we're just about done. Right? Uh, no, I think we're we're petering off here. But uh, uh, I think we had a good discussion here. Uh, um, I was a bit worried going in, as I was saying to you earlier, because uh, um, I was just a little worried we wouldn't have enough to talk about. But we've gone on for a while, so uh, yeah. yeah, let's nope. cap it off. I think it's good. Uh, one, what there is one thing, one last bit, uh, thing I wanted to mention, and. Um, Alan Moore, who is of course a big Lovecraft fan, and uh, he did he also used the King in Yellow in um, his uh, he did some Lovecraft stories, Neonomicon and uh, the Courtyard, and uh, there were stories, and then they got turned prose stories, they got turned into comics, and he's also doing one called Providence, which I haven't read, but it's out there, um, and yeah, they feature the King in Yellow, um, and again, he's got the idea of sort of welding all these mythos together and he he of course it's a good way to explore metafiction um alan moore also did a story a series called promethea which is uh interesting because it has some of what i'm talking about this idea of a character who gets passed down from author to author and starts showing up in all different stories and all different fictions and actually we learn as a superhero in the real world uh but that feels like maybe he was uh, taking a bit of a page from the king in yellow as well just this idea of uh a character who doesn't is not claimed by any one author. They've sort of been uh, they've sort of been become a playground that shows up in all these different stories. Um, in this case, it's a more benevolent figure, but it's uh, it's it's interesting to me. And that's that's well, one that, of the, that's a common thing in magic, though the idea of uh, creating a, a being out of pure belief. Right, right. And but that's, I uh, mean, in Farnamore as well, who worships a fraudulent snake puppet god. Right. Yeah. Well. Yes. Exactly. But he's. But. But I'm just saying that's. It's interesting because that the King in Yellow did actually accomplish that, and you can even argue that even though you know Robert Chambers wrote the stories, since it does in some ways predate him, elements of the mythos predate him, and he's been folded into this other author, and then he's been, you know, and it's public domain, and it's become part of the larger mythos of pop culture. Uh, in some ways, there's something very pure about that. That's how folklore used to work. You know, we don't know who the authors of all these classic folk folk tales and fairy tales and legends are. Uh, they're just the characters who who showed up and were added to and developed over you know centuries. And something you know, you don't usually get that with modern prose because we know who wrote all the books. But you know, with King and Yellow, there's actually a trace of that. He's a character who's kind of outgrown any individual author. So I just find that interesting. Well, that's it for What Mad Universe this week. I'm Philip Rice, heir to Las Carcosa, and with me was my co-host, Adam Prosser, who wears the pallid mask. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Uh, our theme song, which uh, our theme song, which the Hyades sang, was by Jack Burek, and we want to give a special thanks to Alex Ross, who knows the secrets of the Lake of Holly. Until next time, woe to you who are crowned with the crown of the king in yellow.